When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you loved the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the Northwest Division Capsule, so that is a off-season review, season preview, for the Northwest, and my guests are David Locke, who is the radio voice of the Utah Jazz and the creator of the Locked On Podcast Network, and Adam Mares of Denver Stiffs. And great conversation, really enjoyed it, runs about an hour 20, and it went into a lot of stuff, and we got into some new things even towards the end, so there, we realized that there was a big topic we hadn't discussed, so we just keep on going. But I absolutely loved it. Hope you will too. This episode is sponsored by Blue Apron. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm and get three meals for free, including free shipping. And now on to the show. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Our pleasure. Well, I'll speak for myself at least. <laughs> you can speak for me as well. Very excited to be here. So, so, Danny, I do have one problem coming on this show. I have one big problem. I'm excited. And to that hear. is, I use this show a great deal for my prep for all of my teams. And I find myself, after I watched your South, listened to your Southwest Division one, wanting to go listen to the Northwest Division one to see what people were saying about the team I cover. And it's not nearly as much fun if I'm the person talking about it because I kind of know what I think. Well, then we'll, we'll, lean, we'll lean a little bit on Adam then, and you can, you can react a little bit more if you like. Sounds good. We're all in trouble then. So uh, the first question for this, because I, I started with an off-season review, and then we get into uh, a regular season preview, is a basic question. Who got better and who got worse? Yeah, well, I think Utah is the one that, that got a lot better. Obviously, Minnesota as well is another team that improved just with adding uh, Tibbs. I think Portland's going to be better because they have such a young roster and a lot of continuity. Denver, I think, got better, but probably more marginally so. They also got younger by adding three rookies. So they're the one that I think they got better, but but, but only a little bit. And then the only team that, that probably got worse is obviously Oklahoma City losing arguably the best player or top three player in the NBA. So I think a lot of the Northwest Division improved other than Oklahoma City. I think Minnesota got the most improvement of anyone just in almost to go back if you think about kind of a landscape changing trade in the nba when pal gasol got traded from memphis to the lakers to replace kwame brown you went from a top five you went to a top five power forward replacing the single worst player in the league at that position and and that's arguably what minnesota just did they just grabbed a top five coach in the nba and replaced arguably the worst coach in the league so I think Minnesota, and you add in their natural talent level that they have a future MVP in Carl Anthony Towns will now be unleashed upon the world, and they might have a future Scottie Pippen and Andrew Wiggins, uh, I think we'll look back as a landscape changing, maybe to the entire NBA, the hiring of Tom Thibodeau, Scott Layden. Uh, frankly, it's not been the most functional organization either. You've never, I know the death of Flip Saunders, tragic as it was, 
you know, had them beforehand feeling like they might be heading in the right direction. But that's not an organization that was regularly making moves where you thought to yourself, wow, Minnesota's really nailing it right now. And now they suddenly have, you know, this incredible experience of Scott Layden, one of the best coaches. They really seem to have it buckled down. And uh, I, I think Minnesota, well, I, I like a lot what Utah did. I think Denver's much better than people realize. I, I don't necessarily like Portland's offseason, but I think they're, they're really good. Uh, I think Minnesota had a landscape changing offseason. Yeah, I, I really do agree with that. And the other part for Minnesota that's so crazy about it is not only did they have this massive upgraded coach and, you know, more marginal upgrades in terms of talent, just roster guys, Cole Aldrich is going to help them out, but they have probably the largest age related improvement in the entire league because their whole team was really young. And so you have all these guys and even somebody like Nemanja Bielitsa, who was n- new to the NBA, he had a big adjustment to go through as well. And so they get to clean all that stuff up and losing Garnett hurts, but their talent on the floor should be better. I agree with you that coaching is there and Minnesota. I mean, I'm somebody who th- ends up thinking sometimes more about the future teams, like the teams that'll be big in a couple of years than the teams that are big presently. And with Minnesota, it was this lingering thing of who are they going to get? Because sadly, with the passing of Flip Saunders, it was it looked like it was going to be a transition year. And while we're not sure if Thibodeau is going to be the perfect GM for them, the team president part of it, he is the perfect coach for them because the biggest flaw that Minnesota had last year was they had all these guys who could be good defenders and weren't. You know, Andrew Wiggins was not a good defender last year. He was worse his rookie year, but he was still shaky. Levine could be better than he is. Towns was was all right, but it could get a lot better. And Thibodeau should be a massive for all that stuff. The one of the things I think about with Tibbs is, you know, the schematic things and the team things can be relatively complex. But I've also heard that he spends so much time on his practices on the tiny details of defense, the little footwork, being on the exact same, the exact right spot on a pick and roll within an inch. And I just wonder how much, how long it's going to take such a young core to grasp all of those things. Ideally, I think they're going to be a phenomenal team in two and three years. But I, I'm a little bit, I think, below most people on the type of improvement they can make in year one because there are so many, so many guys that have a lot of potential defensively but have a long way to go to get there. So it'll be really an interesting experiment, just a, a basketball experiment, and how much of an impact a coach can have on such a young group. I'm going through the roof change. They couldn't have played a less good, uh, nice English. I sound like Donald, uh, <laughs> less good last year. They didn't shoot any threes. Their yeah. offense was completely based on inefficiency. Their defensive effort was lethargic and uninterested at best. They went in and out. You know, even I was listening to Alan Horton, who's their radio voice and host Locked on Wolves, and he was even breaking down their great wins against the Warriors in Portland last year, and he pointed out that the defensive ratings in those games were were not very good. They just outscored people on given nights. I I think they have a win improvement that's equal to when you add Tim Duncan or something like that to your team. I I think Minnesota makes the playoffs. Mm. I I think there's a reasonable shot at it, and what helps them a lot is that the that middle group and we'll talk about this a little bit later that middle group in the west there are a lot of teams that are pretty good but there aren't enough that are really good to really seal off the playoffs this isn't one of those seasons where there are you know 850 win teams or anything like that so they're in the mix if they can get into the low mid 40s to to really make it work and we'll we'll figure out exactly where the line is and that'll be a, a question there but to get back to the core to the core idea of this question originally 
what I find interesting about this division is I think four of the teams unambiguously got better, and that they might be the only division in the NBA where that's true, where just teams right. really did improve. And Oklahoma City probably did a really good job. I, I think you could argue they did a very good job from a bad situation. They fleeced the Magic in the Serge Ibaka trade. Of course, that was more a long-term thing than a present thing. And then, yeah, they lost KD, but they they did a real relatively good job building around that and getting Russ to go for another year. So that is really impressive, and it also lines up with something that all of these teams are very well run. And even we'll be we'll talk about Portland's offseason a little bit, but nobody would argue that Portland is a poorly run team. And this is when that kind of comes to to sow its oats is when it's an offseason when most teams had bad summers, even if the teams that got better, but Almost everybody here not only got better, but did a really good job. Can I go back to the Victor Oladipo question? Why Why do we think that they fleeced him on the Oladipo trade? The Oladipo is an, a nice fit. I don't love him as a player, but he has team control. He's going to be he's going to be a restricted free agent after this year. They got a lottery pick. Sabonis is going to be a nice fit for them. And I expected that Arsan Ilyasova was going to be their starting power forward. Now it might be Sabonis. We don't really know. But either way, they did that. And Serge Ibaka is a wonderful basketball player. And and you could say that if Durant was coming back, then you have to keep it all together. I mean, that Thunder team was a heartbeat away from the title last year. As much as people want to say to the Western Conference champions, they were a heartbeat away from the title because I firmly believe they would have beaten the, they would have beaten the Cavs. So if that was, let's say, off the table... They got more value for a guy on an expiring contract who's going to demand the max than we're going to see, you know. And and he's Ibaka's not, you know, he's not that type of like James Harden guy where you know he's going to get a lot better. He, you know, might be on the the high downside, but the downside of his career. And to get a lottery pick, a quality young player, and a potential starter is a ton. I think I'm a little bit lower on on just the fit of this team, and I'm sure we're going to get into kind of ranking the Northwest Division, and I think I'll probably be a little bit lower on Oklahoma City than than most, but obviously just the shooting aspect of it, I think there's a lot of variables to this team that could cause them to really struggle offensively, um, despite obviously Westbrook's brilliance and being able to dominate the ball, so when I look at the roster, I like Oladipo as a player, but that that'll be a very def- very good defensive one two three, or has a potential to be a good defensive one two three. But there's just not a lot of shooting in that backcourt, and and that'll be the thing I'm keeping my eye on with them. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit on that side of things. First off, I love Ursan Ilyasova about four, three years ago. Right. That player hasn't that player hasn't come back, and he's got some real injury issues from what I've heard around the league when. He's been available. There have been a lot of teams that have bypassed on him and have not taken him. Oladipo, to me, is interesting, but I'm not completely there yet. He did make an adjustment that I like. If you look back at his 14-15 season, as a shooting guard in the NBA, he only took 17% of his possessions as a three, which is insanely low. Last year, he was at 23%. So that's better, but that's still crazy low. So you now have Oladipo, who doesn't shoot an awful lot of threes. You have Westbrook, who shoots some, but that's probably not his his deal. And in a league in which you're supposed to stretch, and frankly, when I kind of look at what they are, Westbrook, by the way, used 16% of his possessions last year. And when I look at kind of what their strengths are, to some extent, their strength becomes Steven Adams, and Ennis Cantor and their big bodies down low, which we don't think of as great offensive players, but they're both pretty efficient. 
And I don't know what kind of room they're going to have on a roster that doesn't have those kind of three-point shooters. I think both Stephen Adams and Serge Ibaka, excuse me, Stephen Adams and Ennis Cantor certainly did a lot because of the fact they were on the floor with Serge Ibaka. So I'm not as sold on that. Maybe Oladipo makes the next step. Maybe you just need a different environment. Uh, I admire Sam Presti's ability to go get top five draft pick talent with the regularity without ever going in the top five of the draft. The question is going to be whether any of them ever work, Waiters, Cantor, and Oladipo. I'd probably go a step further even with Oklahoma City in that I think teams will be able to, you know, kind of stack the pain a little bit against them just because of those guys are, are such inconsistent shooters and, and to a certain extent unwilling shooters from behind the arc. And your point about Ilyasova, he, I, I think the stretch four has kind of evolved over the last years. He's kind of a standstill stretch four on offense more than he is like a playmaking stretch for, at least at this stage in his career. So even his spacing, the spacing that he provides is a little bit more limited maybe than a more mobile offensive uh, for. I like that you guys are making me good have point. to ca- you guys are making me have to couch this that I thought they did a good job in the trade in terms of the overall talent they brought back, but I actively dislike the fit of these players together. And I think that is an important nuance and I'm happy that you guys did that because the Thunder are in this really strange place where the players they have at this moment don't make sense together. And you could argue that happened to a little degree with, with Russ and KD just because the way they played, but now it's just a skill set issue. And so David talked about the idea of, of Westbrook and Oladipo, but that gets compounded to the nth degree by Robertson playing the three, who not only isn't a good shooter, but doesn't want to shoot. And so teams can crash in. Westbrook's not going to have as much space to finish. He's a better foul drawer on drives than finisher and it's a lot harder to get those when you're going through a thicket than when it's one dude it's, but you're not going to get superstar calls when there are two guys standing there and you just kind of run between them and fall over so that will be a big problem for them to to figure it out and they don't really have other ways on their roster outside of these key players to kind of sacrifice resources because some of their draft picks are owned by the jazz and, and other teams and all that kind of stuff so when they make changes, which I assume they will, they're going to be more wholesale than a team that really wants to take a small step up. By the way, I have one I really want to know about Oklahoma City. It has nothing to do with on the floor. Let's do it. I'm actually serious about this, and I've been trying to find it out. I can't find it. There's basically a civil war going on in Turkey, right? There's a revolution that failed. And Ennis Cantor's come way out about how pro-Gulani right. is to the point where talked about changing his name. Ilya Silva's Turkish also... I'm really curious to know whether or not we have some of the interesting circumstances we had when Bosnia-Herzegovina and the Serbian things were taking place there. I mean, I, we sometimes forget about that, but that could get a, that, that could be a really interesting circumstance there if Ilyasova and Cantor don't see the same thing going on in their homeland in that locker room. I have heard that uh, Turkoglu and Cantor have been at uh, at odds with each other and have had public statements about each other. I think, and I don't, I, I might be misremembering this, so Danny, you might be able to help me out. But I think Turkoglu even lobbied was part of the group that lobbied to keep him off of the national team. So that's a really good that's a really good thought, and a really I, I would like to know as well if those two are on you know on the same page or if they do have differences, if they're able to uh, you know to handle how they're handling those. Cantor's father came out and disowned him publicly. Right, right. It's not something that we as Americans may understand. Right. Well, yeah, and I, I don't know the nuances, the nuances of all that in this specific case, but there are a lot of times where those kind of international situations end up mattering. I mean, it wasn't they weren't on the same team, but I think about the the weird 
rivalry between Goran Dragic and Sasha Vujicic. It's just like this super weird, super intense thing that exists. And it's all related to long, long ago stuff. And and so the, those sorts of things do exist in the league. And David's right. That's something that absolutely has to be considered. Uh, we'll I, I didn't mean to derail it. No, no, I, I love that. That was a great point that I haven't heard anybody make publicly. I'm thrilled you made it. Before we move on, I want to talk, take a quick moment to talk to you about Blue Apron. It is a fantastic food delivery service, and just a couple days ago, made a really good meal. It was They called it crispy pork chops with roast potatoes, and then there was a salad on the side with tomatoes and zucchini that was really good. And it was another example of something that I had built more confidence in, even though I hadn't done exactly that, done something similar because it used a breading process that I had used in a previous recipe, so instead of you know, learning and doing all that, it was more building confidence. And I talk a lot when I do Blue Apron ads about cooking confidence, but it is important. So for me, it was really good. And that I was able to make that adjustment and, and do it more comfortably just showed my own progression with it, which was legitimately exciting. And it also was an example of one of the other hallmarks of Blue Apron, which is really good fresh ingredients. Their vegetables are excellent in terms of that and the zucchini and potatoes and everything in that were no exception. And you can try out Blue Apron for yourself. I would highly recommend that just especially if you've heard me talk about effusively praise it for so long. You can go to blueapron.com slash real GM. You get three meals for free, including free shipping. And it is a nice way to, of seeing how well it can work for you. And they, it's a lot of amazing options, good recipes, great food, and so you get all of these positives in one thing, and it's become something I look forward to every week. I just got a delivery last night when I was covering the Warriors, but excited about making that over the weekend, and you can check it out again at blueapron.com slash realgm, three meals for free, and now back to the conversation. A move, so it can be a draft pick, a trade, a signing that stood out to you for whatever reason. So basically something you want to bring up that you think we should discuss that happened in this division. Well, I'd go with George Hill trade by the Jazz. Dennis Lindsay was in a precarious situation as the general manager of the Jazz where he simply could not go to the beginning of the next season without a point guard. One, I don't think you could possibly rely on Dante Exum, who has played one full season of basketball in the last three years and is coming off an ACL to be your starter. I don't think you could have afforded to have Shelvin Mack be your starter. I don't think you could have had Howell Neto. I don't think you could have Trey Burke. And so now you had to go on the market to go get a starting point guard. And, and the real reason in that is at some point, the rebuilding had to stop and the trying to become a playoff team had to begin, particularly with Gordon Hayward being a free agent in the off season. There were just so many factors going on here that without anyone, I think realizing it across the league, Utah was in, and particularly Dennis Lindsay was in a very precarious situation with this point guard. And then you're like, okay, well, who are we going to go get? And you have this unique team where your wings do a huge amount of your pick and roll action and handle the ball a lot. So yep. you can't go get Jeff Teague that's the ball. You can't go and, – and now you're down to really, uh, without making this too long an answer because I don't want to run through every point guard, in my opinion, they were then down to just two choices. They had to go get either Drew Holiday or George Hill. Because the other aspect of this is if Dante Exum does come back by the 41st game of the year and is really ready to play, you've got to be able to play him. And if you go give up a first-round draft pick for a ball-dominant point guard and suddenly Dante Exum's ready, you just gave up a first-round draft pick for a guy who's unhappy who doesn't want to be there. 
And so the fact that they were able to get actually the one player now with the uh, tough things that Drew Holiday's dealing with that was actually available that happened to be available matches them perfectly. I think will be a better point guard in the Western Conference than the Eastern Conference because his strength is defense. Andy matches their length. Andy can play off the ball. Uh, I thought it was just a master move, and 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 it wasn't like they didn't give up anything. Giving up a, a first round top fifteen pick is giving up something. But I I just thought it was a remarkable, remarkable move by the Jazz and changed who they are as a franchise. To build on that point a little bit, that was kind of my biggest note about Utah here watching their their first couple of preseason games is that I I like George Hill as an off-ball player in this offense. Obviously, he's going to handle the ball and be a big part of it of that as well. But I think the, the, the Jazz will really appreciate the way he's able to be off and finish plays. They have so many great passers on on that team now. Even with guys like Boris Diaw, you know they could put four or five passers on the court at the same time. Guys, guys that can kind of push the action, play the pick and roll, get into the paint and and drop it off. The one thing I think that that'll be a little bit more tricky is putting the right combination of, of passers and finishers. And George Hill, I think, can go back between the two. He can be the he can kind of move the offense at, at times, and then at other times he can be a little bit more off ball and let Hayward or or, or Diaw or some of these other guys operate and just be kind of a spot up finisher for him. So that was the biggest takeaway and the biggest thing I've noticed from their first two games. That's where I think George Hill's gonna fit the best. I would venture to say that of any player that changed teams this offseason, no player is a better fit for their new team than George Hill with the Jazz. He is exactly what they needed in terms of point guard, which is a very hard thing to find. Like, you don't get many guys who not only are good without the ball in their hands, but are okay with that. And I'm he did really right. like it. He did really like it, and it seemed like in Indiana when he had a larger role in the offense when Paul George was missing time due to his leg injury, but... He can do it. He's one of the best catch-and-shoot guys in the league, especially at the point guard position. And he's great defensively. So he, he checks all those boxes at the same time. And it's an absolutely huge thing for Utah that raises their upside. And, and as David said, one of the most important parts of it is also they have this flexibility in terms of what they do with him. So if, if Exum comes on, then you can either let Hill go. You can do a lot of different things. I my instinct is they wouldn't trade him unless Exum was all of a sudden like this unambiguous like top twenty point guard in the league. But you keep him for depth purposes. But at the same time, that's a great thing to have. I mean, because Utah last year in many ways was sabotaged by not being able to get forty eight good minutes from point guard, and now they have two guys who I would say they have an expectation will be better than the players they had last year. George Hill's forty five percent. Catch and shoot, three point shooter. Mm-hmm. Rodney that. Hood, Gordon Hayward, playing off a pick and roll with now you've got a stick on Hill. Yeah, that I think it's tough to guard. Absolutely, that's why I love his fit so much. And the other the other thing about the the Jazz is that I think will be very interesting is that they have, in my opinion, a couple different styles they can play depending on which players they they put on the court. They can pretty much field a couple different teams with different styles. And I'm wondering how much Quinn Snyder is going to allow that flexibility. Obviously he's going to mix and match lineups, but if you have, you know, Derek favors, Rudy Gobert in there, that's going to be a lot different of a front court than Trey Lyles and Boris Diaw. Um, and you could do the same thing for their, at their guard position. So I'm really curious to see if they have a wide variety and styles of play that they can kind of alter as as the game needs or if they're going to be a little bit more rigid because, in my opinion, they've been a pretty rigid team for the last couple of years under Quinn. And they've been rigid because of the fact that they've had their benches been guys that have all been released <laughs> three or 
No, like, I mean, really, like Chris Yacht yeah. playing major minutes last year. He'd been released five times. Joe Ingles had been released, to either not offered a contract at the summer league or released three times. And those guys were getting major minutes. Now you have what the trick is exactly what you're speaking of. And the trick is that you have nine players, maybe ten, who think they should close games. And right. so if George Hill and Gordon Hayward are probably closing the game, I, I don't know who is Joe Johnson. Are you closing games with Joe Johnson? And if you are closing games with Joe Johnson, are you closing him with so Rodney Hood's not closing? Or if Rodney Hood's closing also, there's Joe Johnson the four, which means then either Favors or Gobert's not closing and Diaz's not closing also. I, I think it gets very interesting who closes games and how Quinn matches. And to your point, what I, the, the, and this may be moving too far forward, Danny, than you uh, in your nice structure of these shows would like, but what I think it's interesting and probably has some nervousness on my part is the radio voice who's rooting for them every night. I'm not lying about that. We, it's been a defensive team, and now they have the capability of being an offensive team as well, but do you do it and lose your essence of who you are? You know, I, I can throw out some lineups that I just don't think are guardable which, you know, George Hill, Gordon Hayward, Rodney Hood, Joe Johnson at the four with Derek Favors as the five, or even yeah. Morris D out at the five. Uh, you know, and, and now I'd love to see who's going to guard Favors on that role with Hayward coming off that role and all those guys spotted. But on the other end, can that team rebound? Can that team defend uh, well enough? I'm not sure. Well, and I think one of the big differences with the Jazz this year, which connects with that idea, is that from a functional perspective, there are teams that just wouldn't be able to handle that, and so they can just use that lineup to roll, let's say, like the bottom 10 teams in the league, just go to that at those moments and just run, you know, get build up a 10-point, like a, maybe like a 12-2 run or something like that. And then other times against lineups that are more versatile or something like that, maybe you don't go to it as much. And some teams like that sort of continuity where, you know, they only play, let's say, like five or six different combinations of players, and then other teams mix and match it a little bit more based on personnel. And so that will be, it's kind of going to Adam's point, that will be a big question mark for the Jazz. And Adam, I want to ask you, was there another move outside of the George Hill one that you wanted to talk about? Because I have one. Well, I mean, I think the Evan Turner one is, is one of the, the loudest. Yeah, that's the what I was going to say. In the division. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, didn't, I don't like the move on paper. I didn't, I didn't like it in the summer, but I got to say I've kind of liked what I have saw from him so far in preseason. Obviously, that's this very small sample size. I'm a big believer in Terry Stotts. He's one of my favorite coaches in the entire league. And, and watching him play in the preseason so far, the ball is moving. He's kind of made good decisions, in my opinion, and, and, and kind of picked his spots pr- pretty well. And the ball hasn't really stuck with him so far. So I've been impressed, and I guess I, I would say – I've gone from hating the move to being interested to watch this preseason and the early part of the season just to see how he does. I didn't think it looked good against Utah mm. in the preseason game. Maybe it's because I was nervous. Thirty. Evan Turner took a top-of-the-key three, and let make sure everybody gets the physics on this one. It went out of bounds on the corner of the right side in front of the Blazer bench. <laughs> think about that for a second. Like, that's hard to do. I, I don't like Evan Turner – Math on paper. There's nothing about I run my numbers. Talking to people in Portland, they have made it make sense to me. Their, their point is when Damian Lillard or CJ McCollum was off the floor, the burden on them was just too big. What yep. you were asking them to do is sole creator on the floor in every minute. The miracle shots they had to try to make is just too much to ask guys to do night in and night out. And they got away with it for a year and they just didn't think they could. And so to that point, that now 
Evan Turner is going to be on the floor with either Dame or CJ, and they're going to really use him as a three-guard rotation. All right. I mean, I would. I'm if I'm the other team, I'm ecstatic every time he has the ball in his hands instead of one of those guys, and I'm even more ecstatic if you kick out to him. But I get it, and and it's really expensive. But ignoring the price tag, the concept is absolutely right that you've got to make sure that you keep another ball handler on the floor for Dame and CJ and not wear them out. And I think that's exactly kind of the point. You, you know, I haven't talked to anyone in Portland, but that was my thought as I'm watching them last night was was that he would be the second ball handler and kind of help carry some of the load. And the key for him will be just how much the ball sticks and how quickly he can kind of make make the, you know, keep the offense flowing. You know, you have a a pick and roll on the left side and attack and you weave it out to the right side. And if he can just kind of make quick decisions and keep things moving, I think that that team will, will really benefit from that. And for me, that's what I saw in their preseason game. That's the, that, that kind of stuck out to me, but I really, I, I fully understand that's going to be an unpopular opinion because of all the baggage that, that Turner kind of comes with as a player and what he's been in his career so far. So I'm going to make an analogy that's going to sound super weird, but then I will explain it. And it is that, what Portland was looking for in that niche is a, is a type of player that I consider a unicorn. They couldn't find a unicorn, so they got a, a talented horse and are going to try to make a horn on it. And the idea behind that is what you're looking <laughs> right. for is a player who is a secondary ball handler who doesn't need the ball in their hands all the time. So that is a, a really important thing. So somebody who can capably run pick and roll but doesn't need to be that because really you don't want another primary because especially not to play with Damian Lillard because while Lillard is good off ball, he's better on ball. It's the same issue that sometimes happens with Steph Curry, except that Lillard's disparity is different than Steph's. And so you have that with CJ, you can have somebody who can be a little bit more of the primary because he can do both. He's very versed in both of those things. The problem with Evan Turner is he is so useless off the ball unless he's more active as a cutter if, if, Stotts can be the the cut whisperer for Evan Turner, which he certainly could be because he can't shoot, and that's a big problem. And then the other major, major question with Evan Turner is he all of a sudden was able to play defense in Boston with Brad Stevens, and if that can continue, then that buoys his value either way because then then if the offense isn't a perfect fit, at least he's helping you out there. They have a lot of good defenders kind of in the more high forward spots like Aminu and now with Azili and some other stuff. But if he can defend threes and some twos well, that's something they don't really have a whole lot of. So there is a way that they can do it, and that's why I said they have to make the horn and put it on is because they're trying to make him fit into this, and it's possible he will, but I'm not sold. I'm going to go a little bit that I think it actually all comes back to Alan Crabb Mm -hmm. because I thought he looked like he's ready to take an enormous jump. I mean, last year, Alan Crabb, catch and shoot three is 42%, and a pull-up three, he's 15% make him put it on the floor and he becomes non-existent that's in one preseason game this is not a great sample size to be making a large statement on he looked completely different he regularly ball faked off the three-point line came into the mid-range and hit a shot and that is simply something he did not do prior and if if alan crab has added that to his game then all these things we're worrying about don't matter because then you can if Turner can penetrate and get to the basket and kick out to Crab, and he can create something, then he really makes it all okay. If it's Alan Crab who just really can't put the ball on the floor at all, then that's a different thing. But I, I thought Alan Crab looked like he was ready to take another step, and and if that's the case, then they really are loaded with players. The other guy I'm going to throw out, and this might be another unpopular opinion, uh, is that I really like 
Shabazz Napier on on that roster, and I think that he could be obviously a, a little bit deeper down the bench, but I think he could be another guy that that maybe looks better in Portland than he has in his previous stops. Just with the way that the ball moves and the way that they they kind of shoot quickly from three, I, I I'm very curious to see if he uh, if he kind of finds a landing spot there. Here's the thing I I think so awesome about Terry Stotts. Listen to us talk about Blazers and all their ball movement and what great passing there is and all this. <laughs> Tell me who the good passers on that team are. Yeah. Plumlee's good for his position. Lillard is solid. He's yeah. not remarkable. CJ's, I would say CJ's above average for and, a two. Right, who who was not a good enough passer to be a one. Correct. And Just, like, that's uh, how he became a two. I mean, the way that they got something really out of Aminu, which Carlisle did too, but nobody's going to dispute Carlisle's ability as a coach either. So like, th- they've done stuff like that. Mo Harkless looked the best he's ever looked in his career. And why I really like Napier as a possibility for them is, to me, he wasn't good enough on ball. It's the same issue with Jimmer, that he was somebody who's better right. as off the ball, but should be defending ones. And so the way that you make those guys work in the league is you put them with somebody else who can run the offense, and then you just have them hit shots and ideally scrap defensively because Napier's not going to be a great defender, but he can be okay. And Portland has those dudes, whether it's Evan Turner or CJ McCollum. You can play Napier at the one and not have him run the offense. And that's why players... And it's so weird that Evan Turner ended up somewhere where I didn't like it because players who can run an offense and at basically at any level of competence, the, the higher you go, the better, and not defend point guards make everybody else more valuable because you can team build with players that are unusable in any other system. Another example, this is a guy like Isaiah Cannon. Like Isaiah Cannon is completely useless on 25 of the 30 NBA teams, but on five teams, you know, maybe he could play 10 minutes a game. And it's great to open that up in a way that that other teams can. And same thing with Houston and James Harden, that those guys are just huge for every team. One thing about Stotts and his offense is one of the things I think he's really good at is giving players one second windows to make two de- one or two decisions it's not six or seven decisions it's you know you come off of a pick and roll and you attack or you swing it and, and that's what and maybe that's kind of pointing to what you're talking about is these guys aren't in a vacuum necessarily elite passers but when you can limit the options and you limit the the things that you know just the computation that a player has to make every second on the court then it allows them to maximize their skills. And that's one thing that I, I think I notice when I watch them. There's just one-two decision, move it. One-two decision, then move it. He does a brilliant job of having multiple side action at the same time. So maybe if you don't have enough ball handlers, you can't have multiple side action at the same time. So therefore, you have to go get Evan Turner. Mm-hmm. That, that's definitely a way of thinking about it. We'll move on. The best newcomer to his team in this division. The best newcomer to the team. So it could be a rookie. Mm. It could be a guy that was traded for whatever you want. Man, that's a... That's a tough one, having to go through. I mean, well, George Hill, we, we already talked about, I think, would be the guy for me, just kind of going through the rosters here. Yeah, I, I think I would go with him. I mean, we talked about Tibbs and George Hill. I don't know if Tibbs counts, obviously, from being a coach, but if we're talking players, I'd probably say George Hill. Uh, just to be different, and I have no idea if it's really going to work, but if Joe Johnson, who played in Miami, shows up, he makes a pretty big difference. The Jazz... Lost an insane amount of games last year, late in games. I, I think I've suppressed the number. If I need to pull it up, I probably can. But if I recall correctly, they, I think, lost 25 games that they were within five with five minutes left last year, the most in the NBA. And over the last two years, they've lost the most games of any team in the NBA in those circumstances. So if you do go get a guy who can just is a professional scorer and can still do it, uh, and I would tell you, I've been surprised watching him every day how much he pra- how much he passes. But there's no question that Joe Johnson in Brooklyn was a problem 
when your when your best player is 35 years old and played 40,000 minutes, it's not going to work. But he went to Miami, where suddenly between Drogic and Wade and Whiteside, he's probably the fourth best player and on the floor. And he averaged 14 points a game and shot 52% from the field and 42% from three. And while he did fade in the playoffs, if that player shows up as an additive to Gordon Hayward and Rodney Hood, then maybe this team can be the Denver Nuggets of many years ago or the Atlanta Hawks of two years ago where they're able to survive without a true superstar. Because this guy, I mean, you know, he's still top 50 in the NBA in five different categories. He's a pretty – I know we like to call him ISO Joe and all these other things, but he's still a pretty special dude, seven-time All-Star and, you know, top – 25 all-time in minutes played he's he's got a he's got a rundown from of a resume uh in his back pocket that not a lot of guys have what's great about utah is that they have all these guys who could grow into a larger role than they need immediately and that's a great thing to have as long as you can keep everybody happy trey lyles is another example that we'll see what happens with boris Diaw, but you're doing that and so my heart wants to say Festus Azili. It's a guy that I like a lot personally. And if he could reach his ceiling with Portland, I think he would be their best center and a key to really them unlocking something beyond being a fun team that loses in the first or second round. I don't expect that, though, so I'm not going to say that. And it's for me, it's George Hill then. And Hill is a great fit for Utah. He will contribute immediately and significantly. And it might not be a long-term thing, but I think he'll be the best player in this. But as Adam said, if we're counting Tibbs, he's another one that's seriously in the conversation because within two years, I fully expect him to have revamped, not in terms of personnel, but in terms of execution, totally revamped one of the best young teams in the league. And this, I'm going to throw another name out here. I don't think by any means he's a big, you know, one of the biggest acquisitions, but I think he'll have an underrated impact. And that's Wilson Chandler, mm-hmm. who is an acquisition from injuries. And just because the Nuggets were so shallow at the small, small forward position and they were so shallow at perimeter players with height last year, it, it contributed to a lot of their biggest problems defensively. So just getting him back, if he can play 15 to 20 minutes a night as a backup small forward and guard some of the other team's tall perimeter players, I think he'll have a big impact for Denver. Well, if you can play him at the three and have Gallinari slide to the four, then that Denver becomes close to unguardable. The language Gallin- that... Uh, yeah, the language that Malone uses is that Wilson Chandler unlocks a lot of the potential of this roster, and I think that's kind of what you're saying. Gallo couldn't really play the four last year because that meant Randy Foy was playing the three or, or Mike Miller was playing the three. So now with Wilson Chandler, you're right. Those guys can play together at the 3-4 position, and, and that unlocks a lot of capabilities. Yep, same reason Andre Robertson can't name- play the f- much power forward for the center because they don't really have other guys to fill the role to slide him over. Yeah, we haven't mentioned Chris Dunn. We probably should have in that combination right there because well, yeah. Chris Dunn could actually have the longest, Im- longest lasting impact on this com- on this division, in the sense that if he is as good as he looked in Vegas and he was just a man amongst boys, other than probably Devin Booker in summer league and making decisions off summer league is you know the easiest way to make mistakes. But boy, did he look good! If he's ready to go and he's got enough years in college, he's older than most guys, then you know, Minnesota's got to move Rubio. Maybe they get something for that. It has Chris Dunn has the largest impact on the long play in this division on how he quickly he develops. Chris Dunn playing for Thibodeau should scare a lot of teams, I think, because that guy's just so tenacious on both ends of the court, but especially defensively. So I'm really curious to see how, how Tibbs molds him into an NBA-level defender. Adam, let me ask you, 
I liked Joffrey Laverne. Am I the only? And I thought it was a good pickup. And I, I actually thought he was a pretty good player that got kind of lost because of Denver's personnel. I'm sure he's there's something I shouldn't like about him if I watched him every day. But he's in his two. He's been very efficient offensively. I, I'm guessing he's probably not the most physically demanding defensive player or just out there. But is there any chance that he actually is quite a good pickup? You're, you're probably asking the wrong person on this because I, I'm as hard on Joffrey as anybody I've seen on the internet or uh, any writer. I really didn't like his game, and I'll just give you the reasons that, that I do. I, I, I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but these are the reasons I don't like him. He's a guy that efforts a lot. He's kind of always going 100%, but not always necessarily in the right position. Just kind of always, his motor's kind of always going. Defensively, he's out of position a ton. He plays the pick and roll. He, he moves really well, so it looks like he's guarding it really well, but he's always out of position on it. I think he had the worst on-off defensive rating and, and net rating for, for, uh, on the Nuggets roster last year. And then offensively, he's a guy that, for me, was always in the way. I think he plays like a guy that's a number one option, and he has 10th guy on the roster talent. So He's a guy that's always cutting into space when another guy's making a move and, and, and just clogging things up. And that's why I think, you know, just statistically looking at plus minus stuff, he was the worst player on the Nuggets roster last year. And he kind of, for me personally, he kind of drove me crazy. He does have some skills, like he can step out and shoot the three-pointer. He's a pretty good post-up scorer, so he has skills like that. But for me, I think the important stuff, like his pick-and-roll coverage and just his, his instincts on spacing the court are just not there. He's the but rock. I should I, I should add that the Denver Nuggets front office I know really 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 likes that likes him and would always rave about him even off the record when there was no incentive and you know wasn't for any article or anything like that they really really liked him so it might be a, a controversial opinion but uh, in the numbers at least it, it also kind of backed up how I viewed him which was kind of a negative. For me, Laverne is the wrong kind of tweener. It's a, a kind of an analog to Monty Yunus, except Monty Yunus is way better which is that he offensively he's best served to be a, a center because there he can really start to to mess with the defense because he can capably shoot he's he can has the confidence to do it but he can't be the defensive anchor that you, of of your team at any moment that matters because he's that way and for anybody who watched France in the Olympics it was another really good example of that that he just could that's something he can't do and that makes him more of a role player or fringe rotation guy in the NBA and the problem that I had with it from Oklahoma City's standpoint is they're one of the teams in the league that needed a center the least. You know, they they have guys, and if they thought of him as a power forward, I mean, maybe. Maybe you, you try to fiddle with that. But I, I don't love him. But again, like with any player who I'm critical of, especially when they're young, I would love to be proven wrong. Uh, so we'll move on to the, to the next question, which is the rookie that you're most excited to see. So it doesn't have to be who you think will be best, just who you're most excited to see. I am excited to see Dunn, so so he'll definitely be up there, but I think probably just for my interest in the Nuggets and, and for what they need, Jamal Murray is, would probably be my pick. He's going to play a lot of minutes. Gary Harris is now out four to six weeks, so there's even a chance that he could be a starter uh, come opening night. He'll probably get some starters minutes here in the preseason. The Nuggets need scoring. They have a lot of – the Nuggets are a team that has 10 really good role players and no star – and Jamal Murray, I don't think, obviously he's a rookie, he's not going to be a star right now, but I'm very curious to see if he can, if he's an NBA-level scorer. He's not the quickest guy, but he has an incredible shot. He had a 27-foot three-pointer 
a catch and shoot contested three pointer the other day. He hit like a forty footer in the game as well. So the guy has incredible range, just insane range. And I'm curious to see if if that's going to translate to the NBA. Just because he's not the quickest guy or the biggest guy, he's a kind of he's a minus defender. So he has some knocks on him, but he's a guy that I could see. The Nuggets team needs scoring, and I could see him having some 25, 30-point nights if he if he just gets hot at the right times. I loved him out of Kentucky. Uh, I watched maybe against Vanderbilt. Uh, he, he, had the, he was one of the few guys I watched in this draft who I thought had NBA skill. Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't a huge fan of this draft. I mean, obviously, Ben Simmons and, and Brandon Ingram have you excited, Ben Simmons particularly, but just as you got into the deeper parts of it, and yet I understand the lack, everyone talks about the lack of athleticism and these, I, I think he's terrific. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to, um, mm-hmm. I know Jonathan, Schultz, who I represent deal. I'll never forget. I'm walking, I'm walking the streets of NBA on draft day. It's kind of, honestly, if you're in the media and you're trying to cover the event, kind of 8 a.m. 3 o'clock that day is one of the deader days of the year because no one's got, there's nothing going on. Nobody can really tell, well, there's a lot going on, but no one can tell you what's going on and no one knows. And so I, I walked the streets of New York City listening to a bunch of different people analyzing the draft. And I had Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue talking about Jalen Brown and in a way that I didn't quite see him. And I had Jonathan Sharks talking about Jamal Murray in a way that I didn't see him. So it's a, it's a curious, but I think Murray, you know, the game's about putting the ball in the bucket. And I sometimes <laughs> think we forget that. And Trey Lyles, Trey Lyles is that guy. I mean, everybody killed Trey Lyles coming out of the draft because his foot speed's too slow and he's not this and he's not a good enough. The dude can put the ball in the bucket with ease. And I think Jamal Murray is the same guy. And you know what? There's if you go do the research, there's one event that is held every year that is the number one indicator if you're going to be an NBA player or not. And that's the Nike Hoop Summit. You go find McDonald's All American, all these other events. You're the Nike Hoop Summit. Those guys play in the NBA. He was by far the best player on the floor in that game. So, that David, I love that you're that talking me into this. Does that mean you're high on Scal? Scal's uh, another Hoop I didn't Summit. I do think Scal was great. Yeah, but he wasn't great in that game. Oh, yeah, that's true. He was more in the practices for everything I heard. But so, I'm I, I'm interested, and I have to make two comments because because I was involved in it. Nate is the Jamal Murray is is the Jalen Brown guy. I'm not. I'm the Jamal Murray, and so that's the story I wanted to tell. Is that when Nate was building out the schedule for when we were going to talk about guys, I didn't watch a ton of college basketball throughout the year last year. I watched bits and pieces, and then I watched them for draft prep. Jamal Murray is a guy that I saw a fair amount of and absolutely loved, and it's because he puts the ball in the basket and because he is the type of kind of combo guard that can actually work because. Teams will have to figure out who they want to put on him because he's a little bit too fast for bigger guys, and then he's a little bit too big for fast guys, and that's really good. And Denver has a potentially capable player to fit next to him in terms of Emmanuel Moutier, who's a great passer. Moutier is some of my favorite passing ability in the last couple drafts. We'll see if he can translate that and if he can actually hit a jump shot this year. But Murray is special in that way, and... I, I was a huge fan of his. Uh, like David, I did not love this draft at all. But I got really close to, I never published rankings, but I got really close to having Murray second. That's how much I liked him. I liked him, in many ways, I liked him more than Brandon Ingram. But Ingram just, he has the tools to become something more just physically. So it was there. But between Jamal Murray and Bender, and I actually had both of those guys above Chris Dunn, but Chris Dunn got put in the right circumstance. So Jamal Murray, now I've watched him for six games at the NBA level, five in summer league, and then one in preseason. And the first one, 
he played alongside Emmanuel Moody and Gary. He was basically playing small forward, you know, a horrible fit and had a bad game. The next game, uh, Jimmer Fredette scored 40 points. The next three games after that, Jamal Murray put up 20 or more points, and they get a 29-point game. So to your point, David, you're right. We forget sometimes it's about putting the ball in the hoop, and that guy just he does it almost every time he's on the court. The first preseason game, I think he had nine points in 10 minutes on four shots. So he, you're absolutely right that he's an incredibly skilled scorer, and maybe it doesn't maybe it doesn't look like he's quick enough or strong enough or this or that, but he just makes it work. And, he, and I'll also say this for him. He's a very crafty pick-and-roll player. He's really, really good. I mean, he's like a veteran in setting up the pick-and-roll. So he gets the guys just one step out of position and then explodes you know, off of the screen to kind of force the action. He's very good at that. And I would say with, with his pick-and-roll game right now, one of the things I've noticed is that he's very good at reading the, the read between him and the screener. So he's really good at either pulling up or getting to the cup or dropping it off to the roll guy. I, I think he's missed I, uh, uh, more than I'd like. He's missed the other three guys on the court, you know, when the help rotates or what have you. But that's probably just a rookie thing. Um, and if he's scoring this well with those types of mistakes, I, I, I am excited to see what his upside is this year. I think the best thing happened to Denver, I know it sounds terrible, is that Gary Harris got hurt. Because mm. you've got to start Murray and let them go, and then let Harris come off the bench. By the way, last year, uh, pick and roll, when he held onto the ball, Murray was 73 percentile in college basketball. So that's pretty good. Yeah. And, wow. he, and spot up, he was, you know, and spot up last year, that's the other one is the dude can just shoot. So if you go to last year in college basketball, when, when he was unguarded, I think he hit about 50% of his shots for an effective field goal percentage of 71%. And when he was guarded on his catch and shoot, he was 95th percentile in college basketball last year. He was an elite level offensive player. And frankly, in that draft, if you really went on the floor, other than Ben Simmons, there weren't a lot of elite level performances on the floor. There were elite level measurements and there were elite level kind of testing, but there weren't elite level performances on the floor in last year's draft class. Yep. I, I love Jamal, and and you talked about his ability off ball, and I think that's what makes him really special. And uh, among this group is that he can do both of those things. And having somebody, and David knows this better than almost anybody, because Utah has some players that fit this really well. I think I think of Rodney Hood with this, of a player who, when the ball gets to him and he's dealing with a closeout. He can do multiple good things with it. This was a big problem with Clay Thompson early in his career because the one thing he could do was shoot. I mean, he could shoot the ever-loving crap out of the ball, but he, if the if the close-in came too hard, he couldn't do anything. He wasn't really good enough at dribbling and creating. Jamal Murray is more advanced at this stage than just about any of those catch-and-shoot secondary guys. And the fact that he might be become a primary guy, you know, maybe he becomes an alternative worst passing D'Angelo Russell. If he can do that sort of thing, then that's a whole that's a whole different kettle of fish. But that combination of upsides is extremely unusual. And Jamal Murray's pretty young too. Word coming out of camp is that him and Moutier had they're both very competitive guys. I would call them both gamers. They're both the you know kind of carry a chip on their shoulder. And word was that they were going at each other. You know, not in a, in a good way. They were pushing each other. But word was that neither one could stop the other uh, through their scrimmages. So I'm I'm very excited to see what he does this year. Any other rookies you guys want to talk about, or do you want to move to the season preview part? Are there any other rookies? There's not many. Sabonis, but I, I think we could move on. Okay, I'm good with that. So, season preview part is a little bit shorter, but I think these questions with this division are more interesting than maybe any other. 
rank these teams one to five. And I would say the way I'm doing it for most of these is in terms of expected regular season record. But if you want to use different criteria, use different criteria. I'll do regular season record. I think the Nuggets are clearly the bottom. I think they're they're. There's a chance, a small outside chance, they're going to – everything breaks right and they can get to like 43, 44 wins. But I probably have them at 37, um, maybe 36, which is right right around where the line is. I think the Timberwolves are probably next in that. As I said, I'm, I'm more – I think that they're going to make a leap, a two-year leap, rather than do it all in this year. So I have them next. This is where it gets maybe a little controversial. I have Oklahoma City after that. And then I think it's going to be really, really close between Portland and Utah. I go back and forth with it. Uh, I think most people will probably take Utah, but I think I, I kind of like Portland. And I want to bring up th- this one this one point about Portland. I asked Will Barton last year if he was surprised at all about the success that Portland's had. And and he kind of smiled and he said, man, I've been telling everybody I know that that team was going to be a contender real quick. And I asked him why, and he said, you guys don't know, you guys meaning the media, you guys don't realize what kind of person, what kind of leader Damian Lillard is. He said he has that entire team going at each other every day in practice. All day they're working out together, and that team's just 100% focused on basketball and believing in each other. He said, I was the 13th guy on the roster last year, and Damian Lillard would come up to me every day just to talk about how I can get better. So... That, I think that's just an incredible story, and I asked Will Barton about it again this year, and he said pretty much the same thing about Portland. He's just such a big believer in it. He even said he's trying to bring that culture to Denver. That's kind of his inspiration for how he thinks a team should be run just from a, a player standpoint. So I know that's that's an intangible thing, and I, I'm much more of a, a guy that cares about the tangible stuff, but I like this Portland roster. I like their coach, and, and I think that they'll probably edge out Utah maybe by a game or two. I agree with that order completely. Uh, I'm tempted to put Oklahoma City ahead of Utah. Uh, I actually think all five teams could make the playoffs this year. Uh, I really like Denver. The only thing I don't like about Denver is I just don't think you can make the playoffs if you're playing a, a second-year point guard and a first-year shooting guard, which is what I think they should do. I just think you're too young. You just make too many mistakes before the year's over. Uh, I'm a huge believer when I look at NBA rosters and number one way I evaluate the NBA roster is has that player done it before? So, you know, for example, last year with the Utah Jazz, Rodney Hood had never started as a shooting guard in the NBA before. Rudy Gobert had never started for a whole season before. The Jazz actually had the most players in the NBA uh, other than, I think, the Lakers who hadn't done the role they were playing. Portland last year, actually all of them but C.J. McCollum had already played that role. That's what I thought where I thought people kind of missed how good they could be. And so now they're coming back another year. I agree. I think Portland is the favorite in this division, wins this division. Moreover, you know, as much as everyone likes Utah, and I do too, they've never won a basketball game as this group they've ever had to win. Not a single game Mm. that they have in their back pocket where they've ever won when they needed to. Portland has. I think that matters, and I think trying to win 50 games is a lot harder than people realize. The one thing that's interesting on this is the injury bug is so much of this league, and mm-hmm. I just look, and so if Portland were to lose Dame or CJ for any period of time, I think that falls off the map pretty fast. If Oklahoma City loses Westbrook or Adams for any period of time, because I think if you are playing Ennis Canner 30 minutes a night, which you would if Adams gets hurt, you're in a lot of trouble – then they fall off the map pretty fast. Obviously, Minnesota, Carl Anthony Towns. And I think the same is for the Jazz if they lose Gordon Hayward. But that's the only one on their roster. 
Um, I wouldn't advise doing it, but I think in just about every other position, they have enough depth that if they were to lose someone other than Gordon, they might survive it. Um, what about what about George Hill early in the season? If George Hill goes down in November for a couple of weeks, how, how, how does the team handle it? I think that would be significant, particularly depending where Alec Burks is, if whether or not Alec Burks can get himself ready to play. But I also wouldn't be surprised if the Jazz at some point didn't roll out Rodney Hood, Gordon Hayward, and Joe Johnson at that point. Right. That's because that's exactly how I look at things, too, is, is when I'm trying to project season long things is how to, can a team handle a two week absence from, you know, all the different starters on the roster. So I, have, I absolutely agree with you about Oklahoma City. If Westbrook goes down or if Adams goes down, that team really becomes kind of an ugly team uh, in a lot of ways. And I think Utah, it's interesting to hear you say that about Utah, because I had the same thought about them, obviously, with Hayward. But it seemed like even Gobert. Hayward, George Hill, for me, were also guys that the team takes quite a bit of a dip if one of those guys misses two weeks. Well, I think we saw with Gobert, they're not quite the same. But, you know, if Gobert gets hurt, you're starting, you start favors and play with him, and that's fine. I mean, what I think's unique to the Jazz roster, and this is probably only said by a play-by-play after the team was around them, is I like 11, 12, 13, and 14. I love 11, 12, 13, and 14. And so there are, right? And I think that says something. Shelvin Mack... Joe Ingles, Jeff Withy, and Howell Neto. I'm generally fine if one of those is playing 14 to 15 minutes a night. Now, when three of them are playing 15 minutes a night, we probably have an issue. But if one or two of them has to play 15 minutes a night at given points in the season, I'm pretty comfortable with Withy. I mean, he's a, he's a good backup center at 15 minutes a night. And I'm definitely okay with Joe Ingles, and I'm okay with Shelvin Mack. So I think that's an area where Utah might have a little bit of an edge here, kind of the Boston, Atlanta, some of these teams have done with the depth. The only other one I'm going to say that I kind of think we're, we've missed on in all this conversation about this, and this is where Portland is just so vastly superior to everybody, is stop with debating what this game's about. Like, the top six teams in the league that took the most amount of threes, I didn't say make, I said took, mm-hmm. were playoff teams. Eight of, eight of the top ten – and I think it was I think it was ten of the top twelve that just took the most. Nothing about makes. And Portland is the only team, unless Utah can figure out how to do it in this. By the way, just to make sure I was right on that, it's it's the top eight and it's ten of the top twelve made the playoffs. And you just you got to be able to bomb it. And Portland is the only one in this conference with a roster that can bomb it like that. And the league's going to average thirty percent of their shots being three-point attempts, and you've got to be on the top side of that next this year. Have to be. And that's an interesting set for Denver as well because they were towards the bottom of the league in three-point makes, and they were also towards the bottom of the league in opponent three-point attempts. So they they kind of were on both ends of that last year, and that was a big part of, of obviously why they struggled. But why they struggled defensively is they gave up so many catch-and-shoot three-point opportunities and open three-point opportunities. But that's been the biggest point of emphasis for Coach Malone. Uh, Danny, and I think I think we talked about this the last time I was on your pod, that that one of Malone's team's characteristics is that they overhelped the paint and they allowed a lot of catch-and-shoot. Malone has said that he has actually overhauled his defense this year um, and some of his defensive philosophies. So of, of all the stats that I'm keeping my eye on for Denver, it's how, how often are teams getting good looks and just getting three-point attempts against Denver? Because I know that's his number one priority this season. So I've been grinning for about two minutes because I get to tell David Locke that I'm picking the Jazz to win the division and he's not. 
And that gives me great <laughs> personal satisfaction because I, I, I don't even – I'm really confident in it. It's not even something that's close. And there are a couple big Ooh. reasons for it. One is Portland is not good defensively, and there is nothing that they did this offseason that will make them substantially better on that end. Their offense is great. Their offense will stay great. Their point differential last year, you know, if you want to go offense efficiency, defense efficiency, it was about a half a point per 100 possessions. Utah was actually better than that. They just couldn't score in crunch time moments, and that fell apart. They can't be worse in that. They will be better. So I have those teams one, two, but I, I think it's, I would say it's a, more likely than not that Utah gets it over, over everyone else. Then here's the really fun one. I think Minnesota finishes third and Oklahoma City finishes fourth. And wow. there, there are a lot of reasons for it. One of them is that Oklahoma City is actually really easy to game plan for at this point. And when people say they're going to be great defensively, it relies on two assumptions. One is that they have better defensive talent than they do. There are very few larger Russell Westbrook backers than me, but he is not elite defensively at this point in his career. He was Pac-10 Defensive Player of the Year, but he hasn't been that guy in the NBA. And when you're shouldering the offensive load he has, you're not going to do that. Oladipo, we'll see. But then it's a lot about Steven Adams, and their backups aren't really there defensively. And then the second part is... You need to have a really good offense, and I think because I think their transition defense isn't going to be great, and I think their offense is going to fall off a cliff because they're very easy to defend now, and so they could move up. You know, I'm not foreclosing anything. These top four teams might be closer than some are giving them credit for, and with Minnesota, David brought it up at the very beginning about how there's this sea change that's happening with this team, and not only last year at the beginning of the year were they going through the Flip Saunders tragedy and everything else, but they were figuring all of this out. They were really good in the second half of last year, even though they were still figuring it out. Like, you saw all these, like, silly mistakes that they shouldn't make anymore. Now they have a coach who's going to call them out on it, and they have enough time under their belts to start figuring it out. So Minnesota, I I think they're going to be third. They could be – I don't think they'll break the top two, but they'll be there. And Denver has a reasonable shot of getting outside of fifth. Like, they're the best fifth-place team in the league in all likelihood. It's them and whoever you think is fifth place in the Southwest because those two divisions are really stacked one to five. But Denver has a lot of upside because they missed a lot of important guys due to injury last year. And while they are going to be playing Jamal Murray a lot, their age-related improvement is very positive. And somebody we haven't mentioned at all, though Adam and I did a podcast and talked about him a fair amount, is Nurkic. Nurkic last year was much worse than he was his rookie year, I think because he was recovering from injury and because he was put in a different spot. And Nikola Jokic only played, was it 24 minutes a game last year? And was awesome. I thought it was 21. It was 20, yeah, might have yeah. been 21. And so there, if you give Wilson Chandler his minutes you give Nurkic better minutes, and you give Jokic more minutes, all of a sudden this starts to work out, and Moutier was one, he was probably the worst player in the league the first half of last year. He was a lot better second half. So this could be a lot closer, and I would not be floored if Denver finished fourth or third, but I expect them to finish fifth. One thing about Denver and something that I think they might do this year, it looks like they are giving real consideration to starting Jokic and Nurkic at the same time. Uh-huh. They did a, that in pre, preseason game number one. They don't have a third center on the roster, which could mean that they end up playing somebody like Darrell Arthur or well, Kenneth Fareed at five minutes there? a game at center. Yeah, He would play at center, and, you know, surprisingly, he's actually better at center just statistically, and he's played a lot of minutes at center in his four and a half seasons now, or four seasons in the NBA. So, surprisingly, he actually is effective because his offense makes up, for obviously, for a lack of rim protection. 
But that's still an experiment. And Jokic is such a great player. I think he's a much better player when he has, you know, four perimeter-oriented players around him. So I think the Nurkic-Jokic combination, it's I, I like it for five minutes a game. But they're looking if they are starting it, I could see some very up and down games with that. Last year, I think that lineup in like ten minutes got outscored scored by thirty points against Cleveland. So I think there'll be nights where that lineup just is a disaster, and and nights where it really works. But that could be a thing that drags them down a little bit. Can I jump in here for a second? I like Denver a lot, but we're defying all logic of what the NBA is. Teams this young don't win. They never do. Yes. Yep. Ever. Ever. You never win with a second-year point guard, a third-year shooting guard, first-year rookie coming back. I mean, look at their rotation guys, right? So, And also to my point of, like, what has a roster done before? So if Murray is never done what he's going to do before, he's, just, he's a rookie, so it's guaranteed. Neither Jurkic nor Nurkic have started for an entire season of their position. You know, they're they've they're just asking guys that have never done something to Terrell Arthur's been a backup, you know, for he's got that down and Fareed's got his down, but Kevin Fareed's probably a backup who you're now asking to who's a starter should be a backup. So I I like Denver an awful lot. I think they're gonna win a lot of games and I think they're costing people problems, but I, I think we're jumping we're doing what everyone has to do this time of season. You go watch them on the floor and you go, Oh yeah. Yeah, young teams never win. I kind of think that's where we are with them. And I'm, I'm with you, David, by the way. I, I don't think they're making the playoffs. I, th- I do think they're going to have more downs and ups this season. So for all the exact same reasons you said, and it's not just the starters, it's also their depth is, is guys that are 23 and under. I think they've got eight guys on the roster in that age group. So I, I think I'm, I'm right there with you. I will note, though, right, let me take- they're a little bit older because of guys like Gallo and Chandler, but there's also the possibility, the other reason that you put them fifth is because there's a possibility they trade Gallinari or that they kind of retool around their young core if those guys impress, and then that pushes them down in terms of record, which would probably be the best thing for them long-term to get one more stud. Yep. I got one more boring thing I'm going to point out, and then I'm going to be a homer for a second. The boring thing to point out is we're also forgetting the other rule of the league, which is the best player always wins, and Oklahoma City will have the best player in almost every game, and the only one that's closer to that is Dane. So let's just remember that a little bit as well, right? That, you know, we, we can get into a lot of stuff, but the best player has a great tendency to win basketball games this week. Now, let me be a homer here for a second. I'm going to throw this thought out as, as we begin to wrap up. The league is, as you kind of said, Danny, early. If you look at the Eastern Conference, what, four through 13 is about the same? And if you look at the Western Conference, I think the feeling is that four through 10 or 11 is about the same. So there's actually a window here where if anyone, if a team clicks in a little bit, while the rest of them all beat up each other, they can make a jump. And I think Utah does have a chance to be that team. And here's why. Last year, when you looked at their main guys on the floor, they were really good. When they had their primary four guys on the floor, Gobert, Favors, Hood, or Hayward, and that was very rarely, they were about plus 11, even with Howell Ned or Shelvin Mack as their point guard. Gordon Hayward had four five-man lineups that played 100 minutes or more. They were all plus nine or better. Rudy Gobert, because it was injured, only had four lineups that played 75 minutes or more. And they were all plus 11 or better. And now those same lineups could be just as good. Adding George Show would make you think that they would be better, or at least as good. And the bench unit, you've traded Chris Johnson for Joe Johnson. You've traded Trevor Booker for Boris Diaw. You've traded Howell Neto for Dante Exum. 
mm-hmm. there's a real chance that their bench unit is going to be better than everybody else's bench unit. CBS Sports ranked at the number one bench in the NBA. So if their bench units suddenly are putting out a plus three and plus four and their starters are still as good as they are, then the Jazz very quickly and then become very, very good. And then I would add on, if they can figure out a way with they have seven guys on their roster who are plus 35% three-point shooters. Hill, whoever, you know, if, if it is uh, Exum, that's maybe a stretch, but you've got Hood and Burks and Hayward and Johnson and DL and Lyles that are all plus 35% three-point shooters, if they can find a way to structure an offense with, with enough breakdowns without the one go-to guy that can shoot 34, 35, 36% of their shots as threes, which would be a huge jump, then they become the Atlanta Hawks of two years ago. I mean, you know, you know that I'm, I'm a huge fan of this Jazz team. Not, and Portland, what, what is struck me about them is that, yeah, they, they are working hard to improve, but at least from what I saw... It looks like that was close to a charmed season. They stayed pretty healthy. They played really hard. They were extremely well coached. And so I don't expect that much improvement, especially because they're not super young. McCollum and Lillard, I think, are both mid-20s, 25, 26 in that range. And so you could see a jump, but they've, and they've also been in the league a while. And so Utah has a lot more reason for that. That isn't to say that there there is a lack of variance or anything like that, but I think there's a much greater chance that Utah is a 50-win team than Portland is a 50-win team. I don't disagree with that. I was just playing the homer for a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've already kind of danced around a little bit. How many teams do you think from this division make the playoffs? I'm going to say three. I don't think Minnesota or Denver get in. I think they'll be close, but uh, there's too many variables that can knock it out. And then I'll just hedge my bet by saying there's a chance that one of those three falls out and Minnesota jumps in. So I think, I think three teams make the playoffs. I think four. I have Minnesota in the playoffs, and I think comfortably, actually. I think they're going to be really good. So, you know, then yeah. I don't want to be Dick Vitale because Dick Vitale, you know, puts 76 teams in the NCAA tournament. So, <laughs> you've got the Warriors, the Clippers, the Spurs. I think the Jazz and the Blazers and the Thunder and Minnesota make the playoffs. And then I don't think Memphis makes the playoffs. And I'm not sure I think Dallas makes the playoffs. Denver owns Memphis's draft pick as long as it's not top five. So if, if Memphis, if that becomes a lottery pick and Denver gets two lottery picks in what should be a loaded draft, I think that's, that's probably a best-case scenario. Wow. So Minnesota and Denver with just like the most loaded teams? Incredible. <laughs> They'd have a lot of talent under 24 years old. The story of this division is that it'll be three, but I'm not completely sure which three it'll be. Because we've talked about, David brought up about how, you know, maybe it's 4 to 10, 4 to 12, somewhere in that range. These teams are all about even. So if you take the kind of the law of large numbers and the idea that there are four teams in this division that all are like have a, probably a better chance than not, then if you add up all the possibilities that they miss out, that makes it more likely to be three than four, especially when the Southwest is really good too. So I think the Pacific's only getting two divisions, or only getting two spots, the, the Clippers and the Warriors. I think they're both locks. And then between the other two, you're getting six. And so considering the overall talent level between the two, three and three is the most likely outcome. Agreed. So, last question. What players you think will break out? You can use whatever definition you want. It doesn't have to be the star level. Just players that you think will rise in prominence this year. Uh, Mitch Allen Crab earlier, I think, will be better. I think Gordon Hayward's pretty good, but he's had the number, played the number two minutes in the NBA last year. I think had the highest workload of any player in the league. To have talent around him, he doesn't have to play point guard at all times, I think will help him out a great deal. 
He's also weighing 235 pounds right now, and the game looks just insanely easy to him. Uh, so either he or Damian Lillard will likely take the Kobe Bryant all-star spot, and then if LaMarcus Aldridge fades, maybe both of them will get in. Uh, I think that, that would be my first two guys. I mean, I guess the other choice would be whether somehow Billy Donovan unleashes Victor Oladipo, but I, I would go with Alan Crabb just kind of as the supplemental player, and I think Gordon Hayward would be thought of as a more elite player by the end of the year. I like that. I like the Crabb pick a lot. Uh, to, to go to Denver, because I think they have a lot of guys that, that could that could potentially be breakout guys, but I'll go with Yusef Nurkic, partly because he is just such a defensive presence. He He's one of the best rim protectors. His problem is fouls, and I actually d- dug into some of the numbers along with uh, our mutual friend Seth Partnow, and and Yusef Nurkic has disproportionately fouls on the offensive end and in transition. Uh, in the half-court defense, he's really, really, really good at not fouling, contesting shots, and, and, and deterring shots from the paint. People just don't go into the paint when he's in there. If he can cut out the transition fouls, he's, he is, you know, the word was that he's 30 pounds lighter. I don't know if it's 30 pounds, but he's definitely more slim and in better shape than I've ever seen him. And the other issue with, with Nurkic, I think, was just a little bit of mental toughness. He's such a giant guy, so you don't think of giant guys like that as being a little bit soft mentally. But he's a guy that gets down on himself a lot, hadn't dealt with adversity very much. But so far, it's only been a, a, you know one camp and three practices that I've been able to watch him at. But he, uh, he does seem to have a new focus and a new seriousness to him, a new maturity. I think he got knocked off. He had such a good rookie season. And then that second season, Nikola Jokic kind of stole his thunder and became the face of the franchise and, and the, the, the new center. I think it kind of humbled him, and he's come with a new, renewed focus. So he's a guy that I think could have a breakout year, not just for the Nuggets, but I think in the division he could be a guy that, that people are talking about this time next year. Can I give you a little note to keep an eye on? Yes. I did a research study. This is probably six, seven years ago, so it needs to be updated. But players that weighed over two six ten six ten or taller, players who weighed over two seventy or under two twenty can't stay healthy in our league. Very very good point, and he's already had a, a number of little injuries to him. So that that's definitely something to keep your eye on. He's a I always size my myself up against these guys. I'm six five, so I'm a fairly tall guy. Nurkic is a legitimate seven foot. I mean, he is just a massive human being and just a big big boned big bodied guy. But he is a, he uh, to, to his credit, he really does look slim, uh, much more slimmer than he's ever looked. So hopefully he can keep that weight or keep it even down a little bit more, um, you know, and become even more mobile and more sleek. But it's definitely something to be concerned about. Can I ask another question? I need I actually need help on. I read enough that I know that everyone's in love with Nurkic, and I don't know if he's just not played well against us. But he shot forty five percent as a seven footer in his first year of the league. And forty-two percent. I know he was injured in his second year in the league. Like, why? He, well, he has no range. Why I'll do we all like him so much? I'll give you. Offensively, I think he's definitely more of a long-term project. Defensively, and I really think this. I think he could be one of the best defensive centers in the league, especially at twenty minutes a game, which is, I think, what he's going to play this year. I think he's going to be a twenty to twenty-two minute minute per game type player. But he is. He just has such great timing and mobility defensively. Offensively. He he's pretty raw. He has great touch, you know, one on zero. You watch him in practice, you watch him go through drills and stuff, and he has really good footwork and touch on his shots. When he gets into the game, he rushes everything. And I think I have a theory about that. I think shot blockers, not always, but sometimes guys that block shots are the most concerned about getting their shot blocked. 
And he's a guy that every time he catches on the block with a guy, you know, in pursuit, he just forces it up there and rushes it up there. If he can learn to harness his strength, because I'll bet he's a top five to 10 strongest player in the league. If he can just learn just to use that size to his advantage and, and shoot 50% in the paint instead of 40, you know, he'll be an adequate offensive player. But I'm, I think he'll be mostly a defensive plus and an, and best case scenario, an offensive neutral type player. He's also a really good rebounder. He was 14th in, in total rebound rate in his in his rookie year, the year that was his best, and you know that's a really nice indicator. He was quality a quality guy on both offensive and defensive rebounding, which is something else that I like. It's part of the reason why I'm in the Bismack Biombo camp, whereas there aren't there aren't as many people who are. But when you can do that and be capable defensively, I think that means that you have a good kind of recognition and head on your shoulders. And he's a, a solid rim protector who can rebound. So those he's not you know Rudy in that aspect, but it is a parallel that they have. And center offense is overrated <laughs> overall. So I, he, if he doesn't take many shots, he can be less efficient as long as he does the other stuff well. And a good passer, by the way, too. I, he's an above-average passer, maybe in the you know the top the, the top quarter of passers at the center position. Not as good of a passer as, as Jokic, but but he's very good at at you know your basic passes from the elbow that a center needs to make. Now you're talking my language. Okay, I love passing, passing from the post. Passing. That's my favorite I'm skill passing. in the NBA. My favorite one is scoring because we all forget about that. Like that's actually how you win. <laughs> so on, on the note of on the note of passing, I, I will acknowledge all of yours as being very good choices, and I'm partially avoiding those guys because you've we've already just summarized them well. The number one for me is Ricky Rubio. Rubio in his entire career, he still is only 25. He has never played with a good coach and good teammates at the same time. He's going to have that opportunity now. He is one of the best defensive point guards in the league. He is one of the best passers in the league. And yeah, he can't shoot, but that's not as big of a deal when you can do those other things as well as he can. And the other one is Rodney Hood. Hood, it, it, this is one maybe that, that David can't speak to because you're, you're in it a little bit too much, but he is way better than his overall reputation. And so for him, it's more everybody catching up to how good he is than an improvement from him. But that is something that will happen if Jazz win the division or even, or even close to that. All of these guys are going to get more shine out of it. You know what Ricky Rubio does really, really, really well? He helps you win. Yep. He's my basketball spirit animal for that reason. Another one we forget about every now and then. And he's so, like he's so good defensively. Like people lose people lose sight of that. Like oh, you you get the guys like Delavdova that get credit for being pests, but Rubio is enough of a pest, but he's also really smart. I mean, I think that's what Jazz. If the Jazz get Dante Exum to be Ricky Rubio, that would be pretty fabulous. If he can, if Exum can be Rubio, they'll make the conference finals soon. I think we've nailed it. I'm sure we've missed something from somebody's viewpoint because their favorite team wasn't covered correctly. But other than that, I think we're all right. This is a really fun division. I, I like this division, not just this year, but going forward. I think it's going to be a lot of fun just to see which. There's so many under 23 guys in the division that it'll be really interesting to follow year by year to see which guys pan out and which guys don't. So I, I love this division. It's going to be fun for years to come. And, and they play in a different time zone, so for League Pass, it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> I forgot. I got to go back to one other thing. I just blew it. I blew the whole division, and I got to fix it right now. Okay. This is Carl Anthony. This is Carl Anthony Towns' division, and we're all just living in it. Agreed. That's true. A hundred percent. Yeah, we didn't he's talk a, about him enough. He's going to be a monster. He's. I think he's, he's going to be first team All NBA this year. We didn't right, talk about him enough because, because if Hart 
we all know how great he is. I mean, it's almost he's made greatness a little bit boring, I guess, when you're talking in that because it's just a given that he's the best, you know, that he's going to be a cornerstone MVP caliber player for the next decade and more. Wait a second. Danny, what did you just say that you think he's going to be this year? First team All-NBA. Has anybody ever been first team All-NBA and not finished in the top four in their conference? Sure. I'm, mm. I'm sure they have. I have really? that is that is a research project that I can engage in, but I, off the top of my head, I'm sure it's happened. I, off the top of my head, I can't imagine it. Certainly, certainly at least top six. We'll see. I mean, if you think he's going to be first team All NBA, they they better win forty five. And I I think it's possible. I mean, I lo- I'm bullish on Minnesota. Yeah. I mean, I I might pick Minnesota ahead of Utah. Wow. <laughs> I love this division so much. I mean, I, yeah. I think Thibodeau's that. Carl Anthony Towns is going to win three or four MVPs. Wow, that might be stronger than I would say, but I love Carltown, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna call I'm not gonna call foul on that. I'm with it. I like it. We have to redo we, an hour and a half. We have to redo the whole thing because we didn't talk about Carl Anthony Towns. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll do no. Carl Anthony Towns will be a subject throughout the entire season. We'll be talking. All three of us will be talking about him pretty consistently. That won't be a problem. Well, thank you guys so exactly. much for taking the time. I'm really happy we did get to Towns though. Absolutely great conversation. I really loved it. Really, uh, really enjoyed going over the division. Thanks a lot, Danny. My pleasure, guys, to be with you. Thank you, Danny, for setting it up. Adam, nice to meet you. We'll talk again soon. Thanks again to David and Adam for coming on. You can listen to David Locke as the radio voice of the Utah Jazz, listen to Locked On Jazz, or really his handiwork is the Locked On Podcast Network, which I'm thrilled to be a part of. And you can also follow David on Twitter, which I highly recommend, at Locked On Sports. L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N-S-P-O-R-T-S. You can read Adam at Denver Stiffs and now on Calculus, great writer. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Adam underscore Maris. So that's A-D-A-M underscore M-A-R-E-S. It was a great conversation. This one was a long way in the making just for getting the guests up. And it'll be fun to do the the still one remaining still is the Southeast. But it was great to have them on and... A, a wonderful conversation, and I do feel a little guilty. We recorded this. I'm leaving this outro on Friday. We recorded it on Thursday, and do feel a little guilty that we gave Carl Anthony Towns somewhat of the short shrift, but that was because we all love him, and because my one of the shortcomings of my outline structure is that a player like him doesn't really fit in because he's just awesome. It's kind of like Russell Westbrook in that way, where when you're clearly good and everybody knows you're good you're not a breakout candidate and all these other things you're not a new addition so that is a little bit there but we all love him we got into that a little bit at the end so that was a lot of fun for those of you who haven't listened to it you can hear more about the northwest and all the other teams in the western conference in the over-unders that i did with arturo galetti which came out earlier this week and then the eastern conference over-unders came out last week late last week at thursday or friday on real jam radio Always fun to have them to have those as well and to have all of this fitting together, getting closer to the season now. And one of the differences with Real Jam Radio is that I try not to do a ton right as the season starts because that's a little bit overreactiony for me. So there will be a little bit of a lull probably in ter- in terms of when new stuff comes out. Depends. Still working on the logistics of timing of every timing everything out, but still have to do the Southeast Division have another podcast in the can with Tim Bontemps, which will come out depending on when the Southeast one gets done, and then have a lot of other ideas. I just cleared with a guest another thing that I want to do, but that might be late October, November, I don't even really know, maybe even around Christmas, but it's great to have those kind of ideas and have great people say yes, and it's so much fun. 
If you have any feedback on this show or really anything else I do, you can reach out to me, Danny LaRue on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, MBA at gmail.com. I read everything, respond to, to what I can. It is very important to me. And if you enjoy the show, it's great if you can do reach out and kind of connect with it by subscribing, downloading every episode, and then leaving a rating and review in whatever podcast player you use. It really does help, especially if it's iTunes, but really anything. And that is true of my show. That is true of any other show. And it is it is important to us in that way. And the other great way of showing support for Real GM Radio in particular is going to blueapron.com slash realgm. And you can get three meals for free, including free shipping. I hype Blue Apron a lot because I'm a big believer in their product. It has been a, a real big positive surprise for me just because I hadn't, I didn't have a ton of, of expectations for things of that ilk. And getting it originally through Dunked On and then through this has been phenomenal. And I, I speak so highly of it because I believe in it. I, I like to think I'm a good pitch man, but it's best when it comes from positive experience. And for me, it absolutely does. Other stuff that I've done recently, writing for The Athletic on The Warriors, had the CBA Encyclopedia piece on the disable, on the uh, designated player provision for Real GM, wrote about Demo Montiunis for Sporting News, have, the, uh, have some more pieces of the 2017 off-season previews that will be coming out for them. And then Dunked On is going to be more full force starting next week in terms of my involvement in it. Of course, it's been going strong the whole summer. And then Locked On Warriors, my daily Golden State Warriors podcast, is doing really well as well. And I try to make at least a fair amount of the episodes more broad-based than that. So I've been getting some nice feedback in terms of people who aren't Warriors fans who are listening. So if you want to check it out, really do appreciate that as well. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything.